Everything classic. From the heart of Tennessee, Mule Town Radio. 103.7 FM and 1340 AM. Sometimes we need a little extra help. Whether you're recovering from an illness or surgery, Murray Regional Home Services offers care ranging from nursing services to physical therapy in the comfort of your home. Our highly qualified and caring staff provides individualized care for patients in an eight-county region. To learn more about Murray Regional Home Services, visit murrayregional.com or call 931-490-4600. That's 490-4600. Hello, I'm Barbara Lincoln with Holland's Pharmacy. You may have heard our previous commercials about compression hosiery that we carry at Holland's Pharmacy. Well, we've recently expanded into a full line of knee braces, back, wrist, ankle, and other support wear. We will gladly help you get just the right fit for these items and, of course, special order items to ensure the proper fit. Come see us at Holland's Pharmacy, 1608 Hatcher Lane, or call us at 931-388-4233. 388-4233. American Standard Heating and Air Conditioning is built to a higher standard, so you can focus on the problems in your life that actually matter like the stair that only creaks when everyone else in the house is asleep. American Standard Heating and Air Conditioning, built to a higher standard. Call Davis Heating and Cooling at 931-388-2090. Davis Heating and Cooling is your local American Standard dealer and proudly serves the Murray County area. Find Davis Heating and Cooling online and on Facebook or call today, 388-2090. Hi, I'm Steve, the garbage man. By now you all know about Don, our service truck guy. Well, let me tell you about another member of our service team, and that's Mike Ashley. He's the guy you'll talk to when you call the office. Just call and talk to Mike one time at 931-540-0919, and you'll see why we're lucky to have him here at the Garbage Man. Thanks, Mike, for all you do to keep the Garbage Man first in service. That's 931-540-0919. For 60 years, people all over Middle Tennessee have returned to Parks Motor Sales again and again because they get the best vehicles and best service possible. Go to ParksMotorSales.com for options. New Buicks, pre-owned cars, trucks, and SUVs, financing, certified technicians, parts, tires, and more. Then stop by 919 Nashville Highway, test drive a Buick, and see why the Buick Encore and Buick Enclave are among America's most reliable vehicles. Experience the new Buick at Parks Motor Sales sales. Good morning. It's time for this week's episode of History's Hook, sponsored by SurfPro with your host, Tom Price. Take it away, Tom. Good morning and welcome to History's Hook, where I guarantee that we'll get you hooked on history. I'm your host, Tom Price. Each week on History's Hook, we'll be bringing you interesting and informative stories from the past in an effort to connect the history in our own backyard to the big events that compose national and world history. Let's start today's show with a little music. The song is called Natchez Trace by Bella Fleck. 
in honor of today's show, which we are calling The Devil's Backbone, The History of the Natchez Trace. In the studio with me, I have two experts on the Natchez Trace. Uh, regular co-host Dr. Barry Gidcom actually wrote his doctoral dissertation on the history of the Natchez Trace. And our special guest is Tony Turnbow. Tony is a Natchez Trace scholar, having studied its history for more than 30 years. Mr. Tun Turnbow is the current treasurer of the Natchez Trace Parkway Association. He's also the author of uh, several articles, including The Natchez Trace in the War of 1812, which was published in the Journal of Mississippi History, and most recently, the full-length book published by Time Tunnel Media titled Hardened to Hickory, the Missing Chapter in Andrew Jackson's Life. Good morning to you both. Morning, Tom. Good morning. Tony, for those listeners who may not know what it is, uh, describe what the Natchez Trace is today. Today, the Natchez Trace is a national parkway or a national park one of about six national parkways in the U.S. The, the Park Service created the Natchez Trace Parkway um, uh, in the 1930s to commemorate the old trail between Nashville and Natchez. Um, and beyond there, it gets a little murky uh, because the old trace was actually three different Chickasaw trails over time. So they try to compress all of that into one interpretation. So as you drive down the trace today, you're driving at 50 miles per hour. Right. On a beautiful road, probably the best road in Tennessee uh, as far as the condition of the road itself. Yeah. And it's owned by the National Park Service, this little strip of roadway all the way from Nashville to Natchez, Mississippi. Right. 444 uh, miles. 444 miles. And there are stops along the way, sort there of are. historic sites and yeah. scenic viewing areas uh, and all kinds of things that, that people get, get to see. It's, it's a beautiful, beautiful drive. That's what it is today. Now, it's had a, a pretty incredible history. Barry, in your dissertation, you wrote, quote, For a little more than two decades, the Natchez Trace was the most significant highway in the Old Southwest and one of the most important in the nation. Why? Well, a couple of reasons. One, it was a trail that, uh, uh, a pathway that many of the Western settlers uh, were moving west. Uh, another, it was very important to the farmers in the Ohio Valley and in, in Tennessee. Uh, farmers would float their produce down the, uh, the Mississippi River down to Natchez. They would, uh, would sell their, their cargo there, and then they would walk back home. They couldn't take their flatboats back up the, up the river, so they would walk back home along the Old Natchez Trace. On the Natchez Trace. What did they do with their flatboats once they got to Natchez? They would just sell them for, for lumber. Is that right? Mm -hmm. So I, I had heard, but I, I don't know this, if this is true. Maybe you can answer this. I heard that a number of very fine houses in Natchez are built from the lumber from some of those old flatboats. Is that is that a story you've heard before? Is there I haven't heard it? that before, but yeah. I, I'm sure that some of that is was put to that use. Yeah. So what's the origin of the trace? So the, we, I think of the Natchez Trace now as mostly... Uh, late 18th and, and 19th century history, but I think it dates prior to that. What's what's the early origin of the Natchez Trace? Where did it begin? Well, it was a it was originally a trail, a series of trails that went from South America up to what today is Canada, one of the four oldest trails in North America. And there was a point along the Tennessee River. Today, it's called the Muscle Shoals area. And early on, before they created a lake there, uh, it was called it was a wild scenic river. Uh, it, was a, it was an area where people could ford the Tennessee River during dry seasons. And so it, it created kind of a funnel for, for people traveling from one point to the other. And so because of the artifacts they found along the route, they know that it was an early immigration route. But later when the 
uh, the tribes came into the area that we know today as the Chickasaw and Choctaw. It was primarily a Chickasaw Trail. They called it their peace trail from Natchez going north. The Choctaw had a separate trail, a pathway to the Choctaw Nation. So this was primarily a Chickasaw. And they, the Chickasaw um, lived in the area all the way up to what's now Paducah, Kentucky. So they hunted in that, that area. And, and they would travel this route, this trail, uh, to go up into Kentucky to, to hunt. So this area is primarily hunting ground yeah. for, the, for these people. And so they're using this pathway through the woods uh, to get from point A to point B. Yeah, but, but something that might surprise you is the old Chickasaw Trail actually went on the west side of the Tennessee River rather than through this area. Really? Uh, through what's now Shiloh National Park uh, on up to, uh, to Kentucky. Huh. And then when, it, when the settlers moved into the, the Cumberland Settlement in Nashville, then they created a path from the, the Chickasaw Trail. They called it the Glover's Trace. that went through what is now Charlotte Avenue down to the, uh, the Cumberland River. So, so Natchez, what's the significance of Natchez? We think now if you're taking this trip 444 miles from Nashville, Tennessee, which is a major metropolitan area, to Natchez, Mississippi, why, why, didn't, why not all the way to New Orleans or even just Vicksburg if you're looking for a, a port on the Mississippi River? Why Natchez? What was the significance of it? Well, Natchez, uh, it just it became a very important uh, port city. The, uh, the French were there, then... The French were the first to be there, then the then the English, then the Spanish, then the English again, um, and it just became an important commercial area there in the uh, in the lower uh, Mississippi River Valley. It's a wonderful city. I've had the opportunity to drive the length of the Natchez Trace just a few years ago on a family vacation. I dragged my teenage daughters along and my wife, and we visited family in Texas and decided to leave Texas early enough to have lunch in New Orleans stop in Natchez, spend the night, and then let's just take the trace all the way home. Our girls were just driving age at the time, and we thought the Natchez Trace is a perfect place to learn how to drive. If we can only drive 50 miles an hour on a very well, uh, a pretty straight, flat road, it's a great place to do it. And so we got to Natchez, and I immediately was taken by the architecture. You sense the oldness of that city. Uh, as you said, Natchez has had European influence in it, from its very earliest beginnings, and you you can sense that in that town. There's a there's a feel of of history sort of permeates the fabric of that community. It's a it's a wonderful place to go if you've never been. You, you definitely want to make make a stop there. Yeah. Uh, just and just prior to the Civil War, it was it was actually wealthier than Paris, France, uh, because, because of, of the river traffic yes. and cotton. I right. suppose yes, uh, traveling through that port. Um, much of the trace was traver- traversed through Native American lands. How did the United States government get permission to use the lands? Because I think there's some overlap, right, that the, the United States was using that road while it was still under the control of the Native American tribes. How, how did that play out? Well, some of the, uh, uh, some of the research that, that I did, and, and I piggybacked on a lot of research from the, uh, the National Park Service over several decades, uh, was that that uh, President Jefferson sought to get permission to establish a post road from uh, all the way from Nashville to uh, to Natchez, and they had to obtain permission from the Chickasaw and the Choctaw. Uh, and by post road, you mean uh, to carry the to mail. carry the mail, right? To the carry post. the mail, right. exactly. I'm sorry, to carry the mail. Now, uh, the idea was that this would become a road that would eventually see see more travel 
and Jefferson was anxious to uh, uh, was anxious that the Chickasaw, the Choctaw, would set up stands along the way, or would allow stands to be set up along the way to uh, for the convenience of the travelers. And it didn't happen right off uh, right off the bat like he hoped it would. And uh, uh, there was some frustration there, but eventually they uh, convinced the the Native Americans themselves that this was this would be a way to make money. But it didn't seem to really catch on until uh, the Chickasaw and the Choctaw. Uh, essentially, the first of most of these stands were. Uh, run by Europeans who had actually married into the tribe, into the Chickasaw or Choctaw tribe. Right. Um, Tony, you mentioned in your book there's a little bit of controversy. Jefferson certainly had his eye westward right. throughout his presidency, and it becomes clear, I think, in some of his writing that the Natchez Trace, the Natchez Road, is kind of critical to to his thinking as far as westward expansion goes. Um but you mentioned in your book that al- although it started as a post road and, and that was sort of the purpose in it, maybe there was a little bit of a covert yeah, the, aspect the of this as well. Post road was a cover story. Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution, which was strictly interpreted at the time, only allows the federal government, this is a, a surprise to most people, only allows the federal government to build roads for postal purposes. That's the way it was interpreted, not for military purposes. Jefferson saw he had a problem because if the country was ever attacked at New Orleans— he had no way to move soldiers south to New Orleans to protect them. In order to do that, he had to be able to uh, carry supplies on wagons. And at that time, the, they had downsized the, the size of the U.S. Army to about 3,000 men, and they relied pretty much on a militia system, you know, where every man was supposed to arm himself with provisions and a firearm and be able to show up at a moment's notice to defend his community. Well, most of the settlers lived from Columbia north. I mean, this was the, the literal southwestern edge of the American frontier, uh, the contiguous uh, U.S. states. And if we were attacked, there was no way to get those militiamen down through the Chickasaw, Choctaw Nation, down to the Gulf Coast. So Jefferson realized he had to have a wagon highway to be able to move troops, to be able to move the supplies with the troops. You have to feed the troops. And uh, so he, he had to figure out a way to create this wagon highway. And his purposes were really dual. One was to be able to move the troops, but the other was to be able to open the area up for settlement his idea was so that they, the settlers would go down and form militias in these communities where they would be able to defend. So uh, and for public purposes, it was a postal route, but, but in private, they did talk, talk about it as a military highway. As a military highway. In fact, if you look at the letter that Jefferson wrote for the, uh, asking for funds for the Lewis and Clark expedition, it was a con- he wrote on the very top of the letter, confidential, because they didn't have the wherewithal to be able to enforce it. Um, half of the letter is talking about needing money for the Lewis and Clark expedition which was where they were, the actual mission was to go west and find a military route where the military could go and secure the Pacific. Uh, but the second half of the letter is actually devoted to the Mississippi area, the Natchez Trace area, and the importance of being able to secure the Mississippi River to protect New Orleans. And so it was all part of Jefferson's idea eventually for the U.S. to become this continental nation, Atlantic to Pacific. And in order to do that, he had to be able to control New Orleans, which it, led up to the War of 1812. You didn't have to be a military genius to look at New Orleans and see its significance from a military standpoint, that if you could take the biggest port in the south that connects to the Mississippi River, which splits this continent in half, whoever controls that 
Yeah. has a good shot of controlling the whole North American continent. Yeah, in fact, Brit- Je- Britain certainly was talking about it, uh, leading towards the War of 1812. So, so Jefferson completely understood that, and and so the Natchez Trace and its significance absolutely plays into plays into that to that role. Yeah, and in fact, he said there's one spot on the globe that will control the future of this this country, and he said that's New Orleans. How did the relationship with Native American, Native American tribes change over time? Was it impacted by Indian removal? Did the Natchez Trace play a role with that? It did because it opened the air. During the War of 1812, a lot of the soldiers who went south, they had no really idea what was in the Chickasaw Choctaw Nation. It was uh, kind of an unknown for them. But during the War of 1812, they became very familiar with it. They traveled the Natchez Trace. The, the road itself was improved for military purposes during the war. And when they came back, they, they realized, you know, we have, there's some valuable land down there. In fact, I met a descendant of one of the um, soldiers who said, you know, he, he bought a farm within a mile of where his, he camped under Jackson's command uh, because these soldiers saw this land that they wanted, and they, when they came back, they pushed Jackson to open the land up for settlement. Are there Native American sites along the Natchez Trace today that people can, can visit that sort of speak to that history, that side of the history? Yeah, there are some sites, but the Park Service interprets most of it as being, you know, eight miles away. There's a very important Na- Native American site. So it's disappointing to a lot of travelers. But you have to actually get off the parkway to go into Pontotoc, Mississippi, for example, the center of the old Chickasaw Nation, where you can see a lot of the old original sites. Right, right. You, get, you do get to see a lot of the, uh, the old woodland era uh, burial mounds and the Mississippian era uh, ceremonial mounds. They're, they're amazing the to trace. see. They're amazing to see. Well, it's uh, time to take a break. Let's take a moment and listen to our sponsors. We'll be right back on History's Hook. Don't go away. History's Hook, sponsored by ServPro, will be right back right after this brief commercial break. At Stat Wellness Primary Healthcare, we know in today's busy world, people expect quality products and services, plus convenience, even when it comes to healthcare. Don't wait to see your provider, wait somewhere else for lab work, and then wait somewhere else again for prescriptions. We can take care of it all in one stop. Come to Stat Wellness in Columbia, 1225 Hampshire Pike, and my team and I will take good care of you. Get on the road to wellness, Stat. Call now, 931-982-6333, 982-6333. Not everyone that goes to jail deserves to be there, but they all want out. If you or a loved one ends up in jail, call Billy Hood at ABC Bonding to get out as fast as possible. ABC Bonding knows how the system works, and they know their customers are in dire need of help. That's why they're open 24 hours a day, seven days a week to get you out. ABC Bonding in Columbia can be reached at 490-9799. That's 490-9799. Jones & Lang Sporting Goods is a full-service sporting goods store that supplies everything you, team, or your entire league need for sports. Call 388-8060 or go to jonesandlang.com. Apparel, equipment, fan gear, from postseason prep to customized trophies at season's end. They've been in business more than 50 years because they give you the best products, the best service, and the best prices possible. Jones & Lang Sporting Goods, located in Neely's Mill right here in Columbus. Call 388-8060 or go to jonesandlang.com. 
If you're looking for quality, affordable jewelry, you must visit Tillis Jewelry. 30 years designing custom jewelry, restoring vintage jewelry, repairing jewelry and watches, and they're the perfect place for bridal pieces and engagement rings. They can help you find exactly what you're looking for or help you design the jewelry of your dreams. Just a short drive to Lewisburg on the square to visit Tillis Jewelry or browse Tillis Jewelry's collections on Facebook or Instagram. Property care doesn't have to be back-breaking and time-consuming work for you. Let the specialists at Storm and Norman's Lawn and Landscaping take care of it. You just enjoy. New or existing homes and businesses, basic lawn maintenance, complete property makeovers, new landscaping installs, and anything in between. Grading, gravel driveways, culverts, sod, drainage, beds, whatever you need. Find Storm and Norman's Lawn and Landscaping on Facebook, then give them a call. Storm and Norman's Lawn and Landscaping. History's Hook, sponsored by SurfPro, with your host, Tom Price, is back. Take it away, Tom. You're back on History's Hook. Uh, we're talking today about the Natchez Trace. We have uh, Barry Gidcom, our regular co-host, along with Tony Turnbow, who is an expert and author on the Natchez Trace. Uh, Tony, you're an attorney by trade, not, I am. not a historian by trade, uh, but a historian by training. Um, what got you interested in history in general and in the Natchez Trace specifically? Well, I grew up in Lewis County, and I always loved the family stories about the history. I didn't realize how, mu how accurate my family stories were until I started doing the research. My dad talked about, uh, in, the, in the old days, they, they would actually post wooden signs on trees as mile markers. And I thought, that just doesn't make any sense at all. But then I found actual records explaining that they did that. Um, so I love the family stories. And in high school, I had an incredible history teacher, Jim Milam, who had a military background. And he loved telling about the people and the influence of history on the people. And he loved the Natchez Trace. And one day for extra credit, he took us out to the old trail and he stood us on this old dirt path that I'd played on for years, had no idea what it was. And he said, let me tell you a story. And from that moment, I've been hooked because he told the story of the death of Mary Lou Lewis. He told the story of Andrew Jackson bringing his soldiers down. And he said, all those soldiers marched on that same dirt path you're standing on today. And I was fascinated by that. And, you know, one of the stories he told about was Andrew Jackson became Old Hickory on the Natchez Trace. And I was disappointed that I couldn't find much about that part of the story of Jackson's life in the Jackson biographies. No one had written more than a couple of paragraphs to maybe five pages about it. I didn't know why. And it wasn't until I did started doing the research of this book that I discovered that most of the documents were in private collections, which is why no one had ever explored it. Right, right. President Thomas Jefferson's postmaster general, Gideon Granger, described a part of the trace. After passing through sparsely settled areas, he said you came across a 186-mile section that was, quote, entirely in a state of wilderness. Barry, can you describe the wilderness and how people subsisted uh, on traveling on the trace when a good day's hike would be 20 miles and they have to face nothing but wilderness for about 186? Yeah, if, if they could make it 20 miles, it, and sometimes it depended on the weather and whether it was the rainy season, but... Uh, Probably the biggest obstacle was creeks, streams, uh, uh, waterways that they would have to, to ford or figure out how to get across. Uh, you know, we, we take for granted today when we can just go across a bridge, but 
when you have to figure out a way to get everything you have across a waterway and you wind up having to swim across yourself and then you get to the other side and you have to take everything out of your backpacks and everything you have and spread it out and let it dry before you can <laughs> pack up again <laughs> and take off. Um, that was probably, uh, there's so many stories about the about the Natchez Trace and, and the dangers of the Natchez Trace and we may get into this um, a little bit later with Tony. I'd, I'd like to get his uh, his take on the the book, the actual book, The Devil's Backbone, uh, that describing the trace. But I think that was the most formidable obstacles were the the creeks, streams, uh, swollen rivers, and uh, the fact that you could find yourself out in the middle of nowhere for long stretches of time. For a long period of time. I used to take children, groups of children, out to the Natchez Trace when I worked at the James K. Polk Museum. We had a summer camp called Polk Academy, and uh, groups of about 20 kids, and we'd take them out there, and we'd go to Meriwether Lewis State Park, and we'd talk about the trace. Mainly the purpose was to talk about traveling on the frontier and how difficult it was. And on the way back, I would always have them uh, count the number of bridges that they crossed. Because of that very reason, water was, the elements were the great danger, right, for, for people, despite, and we'll get into the Devil's Backbone story in just a few minutes, but crossing every creek was an incredibly dangerous proposition uh, for these people. How do they cross the big the big rivers? I mean, they're crossing the Tennessee River. H- how are they getting the Duck River? What, how are they crossing those? Ferry boats. Well, and, and let's say here in, here in Murray County, the Duck River, uh, John Gordon operated a ferry across it. There were times when the, the water was low enough, they would just drive the wagon down. The, the army that improved the road as a, as a wagon highway built ramps going down into the creeks, the, the larger, the smaller creeks and, uh, and rivers. Uh, and then during high water, uh, they would either, they could take the wagon, take the wheels off the wagons and float the wagons across the water, or Colbert and, uh, and uh, Gordon had ferry boats that they would just pull the wagons onto and then take the passengers across. But before the ferries, and uh, Francis Bailey has a uh, an English traveler has a uh, an interesting account, though maybe slightly exaggerated account. He's, 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 his writing is pretty dramatic. Uh, his accounts, but how they would uh, how they built flatboats or rafts, put everything on top of the, all their belongings on these rafts, and then in groups of three or four, they would swim these swim rafts across. across the river. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So think about that. So you you have a wagon load of supplies, your animals with you, and you've got to cross this river. How are we going to do it? They stop. They build a raft. So there's got to be tons of timber close by, you hope, figuring out a way to lash it together, and then they're pushing them across by swimming. Can I, can I read an excerpt from, from your dissertation? Yes. This, this is from uh, – Barry has this in his doctoral dissertation, uh, and it's this very instance, Barry, that you talked about. This is Francis Bailey, uh, 1797, talking about – Uh, getting across the the Tennessee River. He he writes this. Imagine now to yourself a river upwards of 1,200 miles long with scarcely a single habitation on its banks the whole way. Are these so widely scattered as to be incapable of rendering any assistance to one floating on the wide bosom of its waters? Imagine us, I say, with this prospect before us, without any hope of ever reaching our companions, our heads just above water, our hands clinging to the raft, and supporting our weary bodies, the trees and banks flying beyond us, and ourselves carried along with an astonish, 
astonishing rapidity. Uh, Bailey said they drifted downriver four or five miles before they got to the other side. Uh, so uh, ha harrowing accounts, and that, that's crossing one of the, the big rivers. But even the little streams, often if the rivers were, the streams were swollen, if there had been a lot of rain, they had to unpack all of their wagons, hand carry everything across, load them back up. It's, it's, a <laughs> it's, an, ama it's an amazing journey. And sometimes they even stopped and built their own bridges if the stream right. was small enough and had enough help with them. Um, it, it's, it's absolutely incredible to me that they, they could, even, could even do this. So subsistence along this 444-mile journey, uh, could you buy supplies? Were there places where you could get material? Yeah, there, there were stands built. Um, in fact, the Natchez Trace early was uh, an area known to attract robbers and highwaymen. And when a group of travelers were killed in Murray County at, uh, at Swan Creek uh, around 1804, uh, the governor appealed to Thomas Jefferson and asked that he begin to build stations or stands along the, the road to protect the travelers as they, as they went south. And uh, there were a number of what they called public stands that were built by the government, leased out to um, private individuals. I think Grinder Stand was probably one of those. And then the Chickasaw also opened other stands along the routes. And th they were called stands in part because travelers could purchase supplies there that they needed uh, along, the tr along the road. Barry, in your writing, uh, you had quoted a number of ads, early ads that talked about some of these stands. And, and I was taken by the description that was often used. They were called houses of entertainment. <laughs> yes. What does that mean? What, what is the entertainment? Any idea? Well, apparently what passed for entertainment at that time was <laughs> was <laughs> basically more necessity and you you need you need food you need a place to to rest you need to a place to put up your horse it's a house of entertainment <laughs> yeah you'd be that's the happiest time of the day right if you can find a place where they can provide you with food and shelter yeah but the trace changed over time I mean, there were the earlier some of the earlier travel accounts talked about it when it was a bridle path pretty much a horse trail and it was, they traveled through large desolate areas. In fact, the settlers called it the wilderness. But the road improved over time. You know, as when it was created to be a, a wagon highway, then it became more like other roads throughout the U.S. And the ends became more like other ends. In fact, there was, a, there was an inn in what's now Wayne County, uh, Young Factor Stand. And there's an account from the eight, around 1819. And they, they inventoried the items that they had. And they, they fed, they fed um, uh, travelers off fine china and, and crystal. Um, goblets uh, and it was just like any other inn in the U.S. So if someone were to say what was it like to travel on I-65 you'd have to say well what year because right. it changed sure. and the Natchez Trace was the same uh, so there were early accounts when it was kind of a rough area with the bandits and the robbers but then it improved over time and it became a, a major highway that we're still driving on parts of it today. Right. One of the one of the interesting things that I found in some of these accounts is that Early on, in the very beginning, uh, Native Americans along the the trace were very hospitable and were were ready to share, you know, what they had: roasting ears, venison, what they had. But it wasn't long before they figured out that you could make money on this, and suddenly they had something to sell. Right, and so so wealth uh, fo yeah. follows that, and that's why we're seeing that progression that you're describing. That these early stands where you're lucky if you got some corn that had been ground up into powder to fine china you know within yeah. within what time period are we talking about 20 20 year time period a 50 year time period well the the wagon road was they started construction on it 1801 so by 1820 they were they were serving the fine china they had brought furniture down from the inns in nashville 
and they called Young Factors a quote-unquote a fine house of entertainment right. for the travelers. Right. So we're seeing the wealth that's being built up as a result of the transportation. It's, it's making business uh, continue to grow. Farmers are finding a market for their, for their products, mm-hmm. uh, and these cities like Natchez and Vicksburg – and New Orleans are really reaping the, the benefits, as well as the farmers here in Murray County who, who have a, an easier market to, to be able to uh, get their, their products out to. And, and the Indians themselves are also developing a cotton industry. George Colbert had to, was one of the largest growers of cotton in the U.S. at the time. So I often tell people, you know, if, if uh, the Indian removal had not taken place, if you saw Gone with the Wind, George Colbert would have been Rhett Butler. Are there any original stands or sites of stands that you can visit if you go on the Natchez Trace today? Yes, um, in Nashville, uh, there's Harding's stand, which actually the b- part of the Bellamy Plantation. His cabin is still there that was uh, used as a, as a stand early on. Uh, in fact, the Dunham family was killed there by Creek Indians. Hmm. Um, and there's some other buildings along the trace that we think are probably stands. In um, French Camp, the old Masonic Hall has remnants of uh, the French Camp stand. And there are other buildings along the route you can st- that are probably stands as well. Mount Locust, which has been yeah. restored, is 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 built as the surviving stand on the Natchez Trace Parkway today. Do we, do we know how many stands at any given time? What the the biggest number of them might have been? It varied. People opened houses, closed houses all the time. Yeah. It's like hotels today; sure. they open and close. But we we left out the biggest stand. One, the most local stand is the Gordon House. Right. right. And of course, the house is still there. Uh, the gov- the Park Service tore down the original stand. Um, around the 1970s, I think. It was a wooden building attached to the brick house. They assumed the wooden building was an add-on, and I think we know now that the, the wooden building was the original house and the brick house was the add-on. Right. Well, we're going to take another break. We have a lot more to cover, uh, including Lewis, uh, Meriwether Lewis, uh, Andrew Jackson's role, and why this road is called the Devil's Backbone. We'll be back after these messages. Don't go away. History's Hook, sponsored by ServPro, will be right back right after this brief commercial break. Asgard in Norse mythology means dwelling of the gods that ruled the Vikings. Their presence and exploration was so profound that their three-century reign in parts of Europe is known as the Viking Age. Much like their ancestors, Asgard Brewing Company practices the Viking tradition of using what is locally available. You can taste the attention to detail in Asgard's farm-to-barrel brewing method with locally sourced ingredients. Stop by Asgard Brewing Company on the Duck River in downtown Columbia and channel your inner Viking. Brown's Body Shop has two locations to provide your vehicles with high-quality body and frame repairs, the best paint jobs, and custom body fabrications. Brown's Body Shop has been successful for more than 50 years because of their highly trained personnel, competitive prices, superior customer care, and timely service. Don't put off body repairs or that custom paint job to defenders. Go to Brown's Body Shop today. 1505 Nashville Highway in Columbia, 129 Alpha Drive in Franklin. American Standard Heating and Air Conditioning is built to a higher standard so you can focus on the problems in your life that actually matter, like the stair that only creaks when everyone else in the house is asleep. American Standard Heating and Air Conditioning, built to a higher standard. 
Call Davis Heating and Cooling at 931-388-2090. Davis Heating and Cooling is your local American Standard dealer and proudly serves the Murray County area. Find Davis Heating and Cooling online and on Facebook or call today, 388-2090. Hello, I'm Barbara Lincoln with Holland's Pharmacy. You may have heard our previous commercials about compression hosiery that we carry at Holland's Pharmacy. Well, we've recently expanded into a full line of knee braces, back, wrist, ankle, and other support wear. We will gladly help you get just the right fit for these items and, of course, special order items to ensure the proper fit. Come see us at Holland's Pharmacy, 1608 Hatcher Lane, or call us at 931-388-4233. 388-4233. Property care doesn't have to be back-breaking and time-consuming work for you. Let the specialists at Storm and Norman's Lawn and Landscaping take care of it. You just enjoy. New or existing homes and businesses, basic lawn maintenance, complete property makeovers, new landscaping installs, and anything in between. Grading, gravel driveways, culverts, sod, drainage, beds, whatever you need. Find Storm and Norman's Lawn and Landscaping on Facebook, then give them a call. Storm and Norman's Lawn and Landscaping. History's Hook, sponsored by Surf Pro, with your host, Tom Price, is back. Take it away, Tom. Welcome back to History's Hook. We're talking today about the Natchez Trace. Uh, we're actually calling this show The Devil's Backbone, the history of the Natchez Trace. Uh, where does it get the nickname? Where, why, why was it called The Devil's Backbone? Travelers called a lots of dangerous areas uh, the devil something at the time. The, the Mississippi River had the devil's elbow. Was one of, it was a notorious passage, um, and they called it the Devil's Backbone because travel was so dangerous. Um, it followed generally the ridge lines, and so they thought of it as the backbone. But because there was very little law enforcement, because um, they had the, had the travelers coming back up from Natchez carrying gold and silver, as Dr. Dickin described, that attracted highwaymen or, or robbers who would uh, find the, the, the travelers uh, coming up the trace at stands along the way, then follow them out into the uh, into the wilderness where they were by themselves and kill them. And so there were no, lots of interesting stories about um, the, the bandits who became pretty notorious on the Natchez Trace. I brought with me actually a treasure from the Murray County Archives that, that speaks to this perfectly. So there was a, a court case that we came across uh, that's from 1813. And uh, I brought the court case, the, actually the, the original document. My, my staff would kill me if, if they know. Hopefully they won't listen to this. But uh, I brought it with me because I wanted to read the language a little bit so you can, can hear what they're writing. So this, this is an original uh, document. It's on uh, rag paper, so it feels like cloth. It's written in iron gall ink, so it's this rich brown ink and it reads the following the examination of thomas duffy of said county being murray taken by virtue of my warrant charged with stealing a pair of saddlebags and a quantity of money from a chickasaw indian by the name of tusk tomby on the natchez road in said county near joseph mares this 18th day of october 1813 so there's a whole backstory to this and as you read this court case they go into it a little bit so this is actually the uh, the judge quest questioning this Mr. Duffy. He had already questioned another character, uh, one of the accused. His name was John Campbell. And John Campbell, when asked if he had done this deed, he immediately said, no, I don't know anything about it. And then comes his, his partner in the crime, Mr. Duffy, and here's the first question. Question one, are you guilty of the crime charged against you? 
Answer, I am not guilty, but I confess I was present and know who done it, and that it was John Campbell on the Natchez Road in said county that John Campbell and myself was at John Pruitt's on said road on Sunday sometime uh, in the uh, in the fore part of last winter. While we were there, an Indian passed by said Campbell, requesting him to go home. We started, and on the way, Campbell wanted, uh, wondered, I think it was supposed to be, if we overtook said Indian for us to rob said Indian near Joseph Mayer's. He was uh, on his, off his horse, appeared to be asleep, holding his horse by the bridle. Campbell requested me to take off the saddlebags and give them to him. I did so, and he rode off with them. I was very drunk at the time. So that's just question one, and, and this document is, is amazing. So do we know anything about Tuscombe? Do we know? That was probably Chickasaw Chief Tuscumbia. Tuscumbe. He had a stand in what is now Wayne County, uh, one of the primary Chickasaw chiefs. So that shows you how brazen the robbers were at the time. There's even a, another account of uh, robbers attacking Jackson soldiers coming back from the Battle of New Orleans. And one of the soldiers wrote about that. They nearly killed the soldiers. And they said, if these men would kill soldier, armed soldiers, you know, what would they do to the average citizen? That, you know, something has to be done with these robbers on the trace. So probably the most famous, maybe, the most famous event that happened on the Natchez Trace happened on October 11, 1809, uh, at Grinder's Stand, when Meriwether Lewis, uh, the famous explorer of the Lewis and Clark expedition, lost his life in what is now Lewis County, uh, Tennessee. Uh, can you explain the circumstances? Well, Meriwether Lewis was on the way back to Washington to defend his reputation. Uh, he had been accused of malfeasance in office as the territorial governor, governor of Louisiana Territory, and he was in the company. Uh, well, he had broken away from the group, uh, a larger group. He was in the company of a military officer, and he stops over at the stand, and uh, that would be Meriwether Lewis's last stop. And uh, uh, Tony, who grew up in Lewis County, I bet he'd love to pick up the story here. Well, what, what, all we know for sure is that Lewis died in an area known for robbery and murder. His money was missing. He was sh shot twice. His throat was cut, and he had wounds on his hands. And, and the officer who was with him, uh, Major James Neely, who was the Chickasaw agent, apparently sent a letter to Thomas Jefferson saying that Lewis had committed suicide. So when I give talks about this and there's a police officer in the audience, I often say, if you find a body in an area known for robbery and murder, the money's missing, the throat's been cut, there are two, wo two gunshot wounds, is your first suspicion suicide? <laughs> and they, you know, that's the same reaction. They always laugh. Of course not. Um, I was able to show that the letter that supposedly was sent by this, this agent to Thomas Jefferson was actually a forgery because Major James Neely was not with Lewis the day that he died. He was actually in court in Franklin, Tennessee, being tried on a debt by a jury trial. And the, the letter is a forgery. The letter is a forgery, but and and the date the letter was written, supposedly written near Nashville, the real Major Neely wrote a letter to the president, to the Secretary of War, from the Chickasaw Agency, which was a good two or three days ride south. And that letter, written from the Chickasaw Agency, did contain the Asheville agent's signature. This letter to Thomas Jefferson did not contain. Really? The, yeah. So why, why forge his name to a letter to the former president saying he committed suicide if he really committed suicide? Right. So what do you think? Clearly murder in your in your. Well, opinion. I think that's what the evidence points to. Now, 
Jefferson accepted that it was a suicide. Clark accepted that it was likely a suicide because Lewis was under a great deal of pressure. But for me, one of the things I've discovered studying this history is that at that time, a man's reputation meant more to him than anything else. Lewis was traveling back to Washington to defend his reputation. Would he have taken his own life before he had a chance to defend himself, to, to clear his name? Right. So a lot of his closest friends noted that he had a tendency towards uh, maybe depression. Uh, do, you, do you put well, any credence in, in well, those? Well, Jefferson said that he had been known to have bouts of melancholy, and that some of the family had been known. But I think it's... It's like today, you know, when, when we hear that someone has committed suicide, a lot of people will say, well, oh, I remember now when they did this or did that. We should have seen it coming. Sure. Those weren't things they talked about at the time. Jefferson, I think, would never have appointed Lewis to be head of the Lewis and Clark expedition if he thought, you know, Lewis was would have taken his life. Yeah, sure. it was unstable. Sure. Fascinating. So you have uh, any thoughts on, on who, who might have done it? Well, there is. Neely himself is suspect? Uh, Neely's a suspect because uh, he was he was afraid of losing his job. I think he had abandoned Lewis to, to attend this court case, and he admitted he wasn't, and this letter said he wasn't with him. Um, so that's one suspect. Uh, the Grinders have been accused for years of, of being involved. I'd really doubt that they were. But there was a man living with the Grinders at the stand, uh, Thomas Runyon's, who was a known highway bandit. And uh, Runyon's family carried the story down for years that he was the one who actually killed Lewis hmm. and uh, I think there was a coroner's inquest from Murray County uh, an inquest over the body and the the inquest foreman carried a pocket journal with him and he kept notes of the inquest that disappeared around 1900 but the descendant of that foreman um, has I said well you know what what is the your family story of what happened to him and he said they always said it was Runyon's and so here are two families who carried the same story down for 200 years. Um, and I don't think they would have done that unless there's something to it. Well, and, and the, the mistress of the stand, her, her account of what happened uh, was, was pretty unbelievable. And, and in fact, in, if, even if they didn't have anything to do with it, they may have had something to do with covering up what actually, what actually happened. You remember, I think it was about 25 years ago, when in Lewis County they convened another coroner's inquiry, uh, and uh, and sent a request to the National Park Service to exhume Meriwether Lewis's body to try to determine whether or not he committed suicide or was murdered. And of course, the National Park Service said no. Yeah, I, I was the alternate uh, juror on that grand jury or coroner's, coroner's jury, uh, it was a fascinating, because they, they, did, uh, they did tests, you know, with bullets and, and gelatin uh, bodies and that sort of thing. And the family's still interested in exhuming the body to determine what happened to him. They're, they're still pushing for that to happen. Is it true that the National Park Service is dead set against that because they're not 100% sure his body is under that monument? That may be part of it, and I, I can't go into the reason why that is. I think they're wrong based upon um, what we found at the Murray County Archives. Uh, There's a map that indicates that there was another place where Lewis traditionally was buried. But the earliest map of Murray County from around 1830 shows Grinder's Stand being the southwestern corner of Murray County. If you look at the old Indian treaty, that bears out. And it shows on that map, it says Lewis's gro Lewis Grove, but it's actually Lewis's Grave. Grave. 
And so in 1830, everyone knew Lewis's grave was right there. And so there, I don't think there's any question he was buried there. So I think in 1849, they placed a monument over where they believed him to be to be buried. And you can visit that site today on the Natchez Trace. It's a, a wonderful park. Uh, and the thing that <laughs> strikes me, he's in this beautiful field. Uh, that it's, a, it's a broken column monument, a life cut short. And then you, you read the inscription on it, and you realize he was only 35 years old yeah. at the time of his death. The man who w walked across the continent uh, and had such a huge impact on American history and westward expansion, uh, what a life he led in 35 years, and uh, what a terrible tragedy the way he went. But yeah. you can see it on the Natchez Trace uh, if you go there today. Yeah. I think Jefferson was grooming him to become president. He had been his private secretary, right, right? in the White House. Uh, so he, he had the connections, most certainly. Uh, he had, had sort of done the deeds that people would recognize as heroic that would s certainly elevate him in, in the political realm. Uh, I think it bolsters your argument that suicide just doesn't make, make any sense. That and the fact that he was shot twice, once in the head, mm -hmm. his throat cut, uh, suicide becomes, becomes a problem. We're going to have to take another break. Uh, when we come back, we're going to talk about Andrew Jackson and the War of 1812 with the Natchez Trace. We'll be back on History's Hook in just a moment. Don't go away. History's Hook, sponsored by ServPro, will be right back right after this brief commercial break. Hi, I'm Steve, the garbage man. Have you been hauling your own garbage to the convenience center? Are you tired of doing it? Does your work schedule keep you from hauling it off regularly? Is your teenage son not taking it off like he promised when he got his driver's license? Do you have something better to do on Saturday? If any of these questions strike home to you, call the garbage man at 931-540-0919 and your problem will be solved. Looking for convenience? Try Quickmark Convenience Stores, conveniently located all across Murray County, Southern Middle Tennessee, and North Alabama. Right now, get 99 cent icy any size. Hungry for breakfast? Try two ham biscuits for $3. Or how about two grilled chicken sandwiches for just $4? It's Quickmark Convenience Stores, conveniently located all across Southern Middle Tennessee and North Alabama. Quickmark Convenience Stores, proudly serving Shell Gasoline staff at Spring Hill Memorial Park and Funeral Home know that today's busy schedules often cause you to put things off that need to be done. Planning for the inevitable is a special gift from the heart that spares your loved ones the burden of making difficult decisions at the time of your death. The experienced and caring staff at Spring Hill Memorial will assist you in making these decisions. Locally owned and operated, Spring Hill Memorial Park, Funeral Home and Cremation Services, 931-486-0059. <laughs> Visit your local Buick and GMC dealership first for new or pre-owned cars, trucks, and SUVs. Parks Motor Sales. At Parks, professional sales staff makes shopping easy. Buick and GMC financing can put you in the vehicle you want. And certified technicians keep vehicles running great. Experience the new Buick at Parks Motor Sales. Go online to parksmotorsales.com. Find your favorite vehicle. Then stop by Parks at 919 Nashville Highway for a test drive. Parks GMC. We are professional. If you hear this 
commercial and spend absolutely any time outside, you need Columbia Farm Supply. Animal supplies, decor, hand tools, clothing, hardware, and more. For whatever you need on the farm, in your garden, on your front porch, your backyard, your property line, if you need it outside, check Columbia Farm Supply first. See all their products at morethanafarmstore.com, then you'll be ready to head out to 170 Bear Creek Pike to give them a visit. Columbia Farm Supply. History's Hook, sponsored by SurfPro, with your host, Tom Price, is back. Take it away, Tom. Welcome back. Uh, we're talking today about the Natchez Trace and its role in American history. We talked about the fact that the Trace came about publicly as a post road, covertly as a military road. Let's talk for a minute about the Natchez Trace and how it played a critical role in the War of 1812. Tony, can you explain a little bit about that? Yeah, I think I think Jefferson's vision proved to be correct during the War of 1812 when the British attacked at New Orleans. Uh, one of the people living in the New Orleans area said it would be like if they were able to successfully invade New Orleans, it would be like breaking the lock at the Mississippi Valley and they could just come right on up the Natchez Trace and, and take away Tennessee and, and Kentucky and Virginia. And that was the plans. There were British officers' letters that were found saying that was their whole idea. So they had to be able to move soldiers south along this road and they were able to use the stands. They, they, they dug wells for the, have water for the soldiers at places where they needed them. So by the War of 1812, they were able to use this wagon highway to transport soldiers. Jackson first took advantage of it in uh, 1813, the first time the Tennessee Volunteers were called out to go south uh, to defend the, 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 the army there. Um, that, that one didn't work out. Uh, Jackson got into a fight with the general in charge of the U.S. Army, General James Wilkinson who happened to be a spy for our enemy in Spain. They called him Agent 13 on their payroll. And, and when Wilkinson found out Jackson was going south with these soldiers, he tricked him into stopping short at Natchez, put him into this fort called Cantonment, Washington, that was essentially a trap. So he took the, started taking the food and the medicines away. The Tennessee volunteers started to die. And then Wilkinson had this order delivered, supposedly from the Secretary of War, that was probably a forgery, telling Jackson he was dismissed from service. 500 miles from home. He was just to abandon these soldiers. And most of these were young teenage boys, some as young as 12 years old, the drummers were. They had never been away from home before. Jackson had promised to be a father to them. And one of the biographers says Jackson looked out at his camp, and these young boys looked at Jackson with tears in their eyes, reminded him that he promised to be a father to them, and begged him not to abandon them. And that's the only time I've read that Andrew Jackson cried when he realized he had brought these boys into this trap, and his decision might have led to the deaths of all these boys. But he had to make his choice. He either had to disobey this order and face a firing squad. That was the penalty, a soldier said, or let these boys die. He decided he would not abandon these boys. He would get them back home however he could. And so they marched you know, they, these young boys back up the Natchez Trace with very little food. Uh, they just barely survived. He dismissed a lot of the soldiers here in Columbia on the way back. And when he got to Nashville to dismiss the final soldiers, everybody was just totally defeated. They thought this was the end of Andrew Jackson. He's led them away. Some of the soldiers have died. They've accomplished nothing for this. What they didn't realize was these young boys had not been soldiers. They didn't know how to take commands. Jackson had never led a command of soldiers before. This first mission on the Natchez Trace had been so arduous that by the time these boys came back, they were soldiers. They were ready to go. And just six months later, they got word that the Creeks had attacked the Fort Mims settlement, and Jackson called the soldiers out again. And because he did not abandon them, they did not abandon him. He was old hickory at that point, and they showed up, and then just a few months later, they went and whipped the British at the Battle of New Orleans within 30 minutes. Right. I don't think they would have been able to do that had it not been for the experience on the Natchez Trace. That was that was 
where they sort of learned soldiering, hard soldiering, was in that sort of failed first expedition. Your description of the mustering in Nashville is wonderful in your book and how in the midst of this blizzard, these young men are coming from all over the all over the state uh, to muster up together uh, before they head down on the Natchez Trace. It's a, it's a wonderful description in your book. Uh, makes you feel like like you're there. Um, well done on that. The mm-hmm. uh, one of the things that surprised me about Jackson is his business connection to the Natchez Trace. We talked about how people were putting up stands and they're starting to make money by selling goods to travelers, uh, but it's an, it's a speculation opportunity for many as well. And Jackson takes advantage of that yeah Jackson opened a store in Nashville he wasn't really sure what his mission in life was going to to be he thought that was one way to to achieve wealth it didn't work out but he opened the store in Nashville farmers would bring their farm products in they would barter with Jackson and then he would take those products and put them on on flatboats and and take them south to Natchez where those those goods were sold and Jackson himself traveled the Natchez Trace several times became very very familiar with the people along the, the route well, the Natchez Trace is, is most certainly, and I, I think we've proven it today, and there's so much more that we could cover, but I think we've proven that the Natchez Trace is one of the most historic and historically significant uh, trails in the United States. Uh, and, and we're so fortunate that the National Park Service has seen fit to preserve it. Uh, take the trip. Go that 400-plus miles uh, and travel along the route. You're going to learn an immense amount of history about our country uh, and w- we talked about some of the people associated from the tragic death of Meriwether Lewis to Jackson winning the sobriquet Old Hickory. Tennessee becomes a volunteer state as a result of, of the War of 1812 and it, certainly its connection to the Natchez Trace. So, so take that trip. Tony, where can listeners find your book? You can find it locally here in, in Columbia at Duck River Books, and you can also find it online. Wonderful. Uh, and the title of it, one more time, is, is Hardened to Hickory, the Missing Chapter in Andrew Jackson's Life. I'd like to thank our guest, Tony Turnbow, for sharing his uh, expertise with us today. I want to end uh, this uh, program with an excerpt from the letter uh, written by Thomas Jefferson after he heard about the death of his good friend, Meriwether Lewis. He wrote, About three o'clock in the night he did the deed which plunged his friends into affliction and deprived his country of one of her most valued citizens, whose valor and intelligence would have been now employed in avenging the wrongs of his country and in emulating by land the splendid deeds which have honored her arms on the ocean. It lost, too, in the nation the benefit of receiving from his own hand the narrative now offered them of his sufferings and successes in endeavoring to extend for them the boundaries of science and to present to their knowledge that vast and fertile country which their sons are destined to fill with arts, with science, with freedom, and happiness. Those are the words of Thomas Jefferson about his good friend, Meriwether Lewis. Uh, I'd like to thank uh, Dr. Barry Gidcombe, as always, as our uh, uh, co-host for this uh, show. I'd like to thank our engineer, Marty Verhoff, for uh, making us sound good on the radio. Finally, a special thanks to our sponsor, ServPro of Murray and Giles County. Uh, Go see Daisy Cook. She'll fix you up if you have uh, water damage or smoke damage. They'll, They'll help you at ServPro. So thank you for listening today. We'll be back next week with another edition of History's Hook. Thank you for listening to History's Hook with Tom Price. We hope you enjoyed today's show. Be sure to tune in every Friday at 10 a.m. right here on WKRM 103.7 FM for a journey through time. Today's edition of History's Hook was sponsored by ServPro of Murray and Giles County. ServPro, faster to any disaster.
American Standard Heating and Air Conditioning is built to a higher standard, so you can focus on the problems in your life that actually matter, like the stair that only creaks when everyone else in the house is asleep. American Standard Heating and Air Conditioning, built to a higher standard. Call Davis Heating and Cooling at 931-388-2090. Davis Heating and Cooling is your local American Standard dealer and proudly serves the Murray County area. Find Davis Heating and Cooling online and on Facebook or call today, 388-2090. Holtz Towing offers complete roadside assistance and has been rescuing drivers in Middle Tennessee for 23 years. They are available 24 hours a day, so in an emergency, just call Holtz Towing right away. If you get a flat, engine trouble, or run out of gas, Call Holtz Towing. Mention this ad and save $5. They do minor repairs and pay cash for junk cars. Remember, Holtz Towing, 615-708-7073. That's 615-708-7073. Welcome to Columbia Chrysler Dodge Jeep Ram. Dedicated to exceptional service, the highest integrity, and your complete satisfaction. We're proud to serve all of Middle Tennessee with over 500 new and 125 pre-owned vehicles in stock to choose from. Columbia Chrysler Dodge Jeep Ram offers volume discounts from friendly and knowledgeable sales professionals or expert service from our certified technicians. That's how we became the number one Chrysler Dodge Jeep Ram dealer in the state of Tennessee. You can count on us. Number one claim based on 2015 combined retail and fleet sales for Chrysler Dodge Jeep Ram in the state of Tennessee. Hello, I'm Barbara Lincoln with Holland's Pharmacy. You may have heard our previous commercials about compression hosiery that we carry at Holland's Pharmacy. Well, we've recently expanded into a full line of knee braces, back, wrist, ankle, and other support wear. We will gladly help you get just the right fit for these items and, of course, special order items to ensure the proper fit. Come see us at Holland's Pharmacy, 1608 Hatcher Lane, or call us at 931-388-4233. 388-4233. At Southern Tray Steakhouse in downtown Columbia, we hand-select only the best black Angus beef for our cut-by-hand steaks. Our chops are French-cut and flame-kissed. Want something lighter and fair? Try our garden-fresh salads or something fresh from the sea. Classic Southern sides, a bounty of appetizer options and pastas, and some of the best sandwiches in town. There's something for everybody at Southern Tray Steakhouse on West 7th Street in downtown Columbia. WKOM, your music, your sports, your radio station. WKOM, 101.7 FM. You hit the right spot.